you tonight that are here as parents, have you ever felt like a seven-year-old is ruling your household? (laughs) See, hands going up. Well, sometimes it's actually kind of true. You know, our seven-year-olds, it feels like they call the shots more than we do. Now, again, by showing of hands, how many of you as citizens of the United States of America have ever felt like there's a seven-year-old running the country? (laughs) I see some hands going up. (laughs) Well, that's exactly where we find ourselves in our Bible study tonight. Because King Jehoash, who is the king that we pick up our study with, was seven years old when he began his reign of 40 years uh, in the nation, in the kingdom of Israel. Now, the difference between Joash and his reign as a seven-year-old and our situation, maybe today or maybe in years past, so that we don't have to aim it specifically at any person or administration, not that we aren't aiming it at any person or administration, but just so that it can go any way. The only difference between the two is that Joash actually had good advisors, that were around him while he was ruling the country as a seven-year-old. And so uh, kind of amazing how wherever we are in the scripture, that's where we find ourselves in real life. But I would ask you to recall, as we springboard back into this drama of Second Kings, that the nation of Israel at this point is divided into two kingdoms. There is what is referred to biblically as Israel, which is the ten tribes that splintered off to the north. And they really are kind of a splinter cell kingdom. You recall that under David, the people had been united. But then his son Solomon's heart turned away from the Lord. And then in that apostasy, God said, I'm going to take ten tribes and they're going to go off to the north, but I'm going to leave two tribes in the south And my servant David will always have a lamp to shine before me according to the promise of me. So the ten kingdoms that splintered off into the north are known biblically as Israel. And it makes up a span, Israel's splinter cell group, of 235 years. Now by the time we get to chapter 17 in a couple of weeks, Israel is no longer going to exist. Because they turn so far from the Lord that God is going to bring in the enemies of Israel and they are going to go into captivity and only Judah will remain. So for the the last four or five chapters of 2 Kings, we'll only be dealing with Judah in the south because Israel will cease to exist. So the northern kingdom of Israel consisted of 17 kings and they were all basically bad. Now, what I want you to remember, and this is reasonable request that I'm asking, is that the northern kingdom consisted of nine dynasties. There were 17 kings, but nine dynasties, meaning nine separate families that had descendants that ruled and reigned. But I only want you to remember three of them, and that will help you, if you can do that, keep track of where we're talking about. If you can remember, first of all, the dynasty of Jeroboam. He was the first king of that splinter cell, those ten nations or ten tribes that took over the northern kingdom. 
And the reason why you should remember Jeroboam is because he's the one that erected the golden calves that became the foundation of the idolatry that those ten, ten tribes uh, fell into. He started the apostasy. And so remember Jeroboam. And he had some sons and then his dynasty died off because of the apostasy. God said, I'm going to blot him out. The second one that I would have you to remember is the dynasty of Omri. And the reason why you remember that is because Omri was the father of Ahab. And Ahab, who married Jezebel, they're the ones that put the idolatry into hyperdrive. She's the one that was going to kill Elijah the prophet and that was killing the prophets of the Lord. And, and just the idolatry and the paganism and the darkness that came over Israel in the days of Ahab was second to none. There was no one else uh, that did as much damage as, as Ahab. And so you want to remember Omri and his line and his descendants. And then the third one, the last one that I would ask you to remember, is the dynasty of Jehu. And he's the one that we studied last week that God raised up as more or less a chemotherapy to root out the cancer that was killing Israel at the time. And so God raised up Jehu, and Jehu wiped out the entire clan of Ahab and Omri, and it kind of started fresh. And the dynasty of Jehu lasted longer than any other dynasty in the northern kingdom. He would get four generations. No one else got four generations of kings before they went so, so sideways that God had to wipe them out. But God promised him he'd have four because he rooted out so much evil, even though he himself turned evil. As soon as he rooted out the evil and brought more evil, it's, you get the idea where, where the nation is going um, through these northern dynasties. Now, after that dynasty, the four descendants of Jehu that will take over after him, then they never go beyond two generations. It's one generation and they're gone. One generation, and God just gives people a chance and then he's through with them. You know, so that's the northern kingdom of Israel. 17 bad kings, nine dynasties, but we're going to remember three of them. Jeroboam, Omri, and Jehu, the one who was the chemotherapy. Now, in the south, the southern kingdom of Israel, that's known as Judah. And so whenever you read that, that you know, Ahaz or whoever was raised up over Judah in Jerusalem, you know you're dealing with the southern tribe, which are the descendants of David. Now, they had 20 kings. They lasted a couple hundred years more than the splinter cell of Israel, and there was only one dynasty. It was the dynasty of David. Because God promised that David would always have a descendant until Messiah would come, because the Messiah, Jesus, would come through the lineage of David. And so all 20 of the kings that make up the southern kingdom of Judah were all descendants of David. And that was the promise that God made. Now we saw in our study last week that that promise came within one soul of failing. Because of a woman named Athaliah or Athaliah who went through the land and wiped out all of the descendants of David and she thought she succeeded. But there was one baby that was rescued by a woman named Jehosheba, who was the baby's aunt, basically. And she rescued him and hid him away for six years, and he was raised in the temple. And for six years, the whole nation thought that the promise of God had failed, but it hadn't. And for six years, this child, the son of David, descendant of David, was being hidden, and then he was manifested to the nation, and he was coronated as king 
when he was seven years old. And that happened at the closing of our study. So tonight for our study, we're going to look at two chapters. Chapter 12, which deals with the reign of Joash, the seven-year-old king. And then in chapter 13, we're going to see two kings short-lived in the Jehu dynasty. So two descendants of Jehu and then the death of Elisha. So those two chapters will make up our study um, tonight. And so we begin with the reign of Joash in the south, Judah, in chapter 12. It says, in the seventh year of Jehu, so Jehu is reigning in the northern kingdom at this time, Jehoash, or Joash, and that's just there so that you can be confused, but it's, it's, it's kind of like we would shorten a name. We would call someone named Michael Mike. You know, Joash is short for, uh, or Joash is just the short name of Jehoash. Same person. It says that Jehoash began to reign, and he reigned 40 years in Jerusalem, and his mother's name was Zebiah of Beersheba. I don't know what I'm doing. Am I doing something? And it says that Jehoash, or Joash, did what was right in the sight of the Lord all his days, wherein Jehoiada the priest instructed him. And, and so you recall from our study last week that Jehoiada was the priest that raised Joash from the time that he was under one until the time that he was set up as king uh, in Israel. Now Jehoiada the priest was the husband of was the husband of Jehosheba who rescued him. And so that was the connection there. The aunt of Joash, the husband, is Jehoiada. Now Jehoiada is really a remarkable character as we see him in the pages of Scripture. At this time that, that it's mentioning here that, that Joash came onto the scene, Jehoiada is about 100 years old. He lives to be about 130, which in those days was an extremely long life. And he was alive for about 30 years of Joash's life. And it tells us here that for those 30 years, Joash did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Now, Jehoiada, if he's 100 years old at this time, it means that he was alive, most likely, at the very end of Solomon's reign. Meaning that he came of age while Israel was still strong. You recall in the days of Solomon, it says that silver was so abundant in Israel that it was like rocks. If someone saw silver on the ground, they would just ignore it. There was so much money. The military was very strong. The kingdom was still united. The morale in the nation was very high. And so he lived through the glory days of Solomon, but then he lived to see the division of the kingdom. The ten tribes split off to the north. And then he's lived through several years of their decline as they've gone from the glory of what it was under Solomon to now what it is after Omri and Ahab and Athaliah and Jezebel have had their way within the nation. He's watched those declines. He's lived through the ministry of Elijah, no doubt hearing about what Elijah did on Mount Carmel and calling down fire from heaven and seeing the prophets of Baal put to shame. He's lived through the greater part of the ministry of Elisha and, and, and all that's taken place through that. And he's seen all that's taken uh, happen because of, of them. And he's lived through four generations of Joash's parents. He knew Jehoshaphat and Asa and then Jehoash and now um, the young man Joash and the whole thing. And it tells us that he raised Joash, that he disposed of Athaliah 
and, and that when he finally dies, he did so much good for the nation that he's buried with the kings, that he was put in that place of, of, of kingship. And Jehoiada really is for you and me a picture of someone who has royalty without recognition. Now, when you think of the great men and women of the Bible throughout the time of God's work in the world, barely any of us would ever think of Jehoiada as being one of those great men. But really, when you hold him up against so many characters in Scripture, we see that he really was a great man. He was faithful to God in his duty. He was diligent to do with all of his heart, mind, and strength what God had given him to do. And what we learn is that people like that, though sometimes they aren't recognized on earth, he never wore a crown. Yet from heaven's perspective, those people are esteemed as kings because of what they do. Isn't it true that so often those that we would put in the category of the who's who on earth in heaven occupy the category of who's he? That's what's going to happen to Joash. He's a who's who on earth, seven years old, taking the throne, reigning for 40 years and wearing the crown. But he's going to completely waste his life and he's going to become a who's he in terms of heaven. But then we have Jehoiada, who many of us look at, and many of us would honestly say, who's he on earth? But from heaven's perspective, he's in the who's who. What it speaks to us of is that God doesn't recognize the crowns that we wear upon our head or the title that's before our name, but he looks at what we did with our life and with the calling that he gave to us and the gifts that he's imparted to us, and then he judges us according to what we did with those things, and though we never amount maybe to be much in an earthly realm, From heaven's perspective, God looks at it and he says, that's a king in my eyes. And I'm calling him or her to be a king or a queen or a prince or a princess in the heavenly realms and what they are in heaven's esteem. And we see that in this man, Jehoiada. But we see that the life of Joash is really divided into two segments. The segment while Jehoiada was still alive and then the segment afterwards. And what we learn is that as long as he was under the direction and the counsel of Jehoiada, he did what was good. But as soon as Jehoiada dies, he goes sideways real quick, and he becomes a very wicked man. What we learn about Joash is that he's a man who never established his own personal relationship with God. He was one who lived before the Lord vicariously through those that were spiritual around him, but he never developed his own intimacy and and walk with God himself. His spirituality was always an extension of Jehoiada. And Jehoiada did everything for him. Jehoiada raised him up. Jehoiada set him upon the throne and put the crown on his head. We're told in Chronicles that Jehoiada was responsible for getting him his wives. We see that Jehoiada even helped him accomplish the projects that he accomplished. Everything he had was because of Jehoiada, and he did nothing on his own. And thus, when Jehoiada passed off the scene, so also then did Joash's relationship with the Lord pass off the scene. It died. And he becomes a picture for us of those people that never develop their own relationship with God, but the strength of their spirituality rests completely upon their relationship with someone else who's spiritual. And it talks to us about the importance of developing our own relationship with the Lord. We see it happen here in the church all the time is that we'll see a couple come in. They're younger, a couple, they're engaged, or perhaps they're just courting, and we'll see that there's someone that's driving that relationship spiritually. But then what happens is that that relationship severs, and, and either you know the male or the female, whoever's the spiritual one, will continue, but the other one just kind of drops off. 
Or sometimes we'll hear someone say, you know, they'll use words like, well, they're my, they're my spiritual anchor or they're my spiritual strength. And that they really are. If that person were to disappear from their life, their relationship with God would be gone because they don't have one of their own. And we see that happen so often. It can happen even with a ministry or a pastor. People can, uh, you know, the, the, the strength of their spirituality can rest upon something that's outward and they've never developed the fullness of the relationship for themselves. And that's exactly what happened to Jehoash. I think it also speaks to us about the importance of when we are discipling other people or mentoring other people that we never let them cling to us as their connection to God. Is that we always push them towards heaven and not towards anything that's on earth. I remember learning this lesson as a new believer uh, just brand new in the Lord, and I had a heart for God, and, I, and His Word was alive to me, and He was there. But I was confused about a lot of things, as a new believer often is. And I remember going to my pastor on a certain occasion, and I had a whole list of, 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 of issues going on in my life, struggles and sins and doubts about the future and about my faith. And I, and I remember he was working in the sound booth, putting in a new carpet, and he was underneath the, 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 the table that had all the equipment on it with his head up against the wall, and all I could see was his carpenter's crack, you know, that was there as he was kicking carpet into the wall. And, and he said, what's going on? And I began to just spill it out, you know, for 15 minutes, pacing back and forth. And this is happening, and I'm struggling with this, and I can't hear God's voice, and I don't know how to pray, and sometimes I read the Bible, and I don't hear anything. What in the world? And he was just sitting there, and, and it was like he wasn't even giving me the time of day. He just kept kicking carpet under the thing, and, and, and you know, come on, would you get in there, you know? The, and, I, and I'm starting to, like, in my heart just get a little bit like what what's the matter with this guy you know does he have no compassion at all and after about 15 minutes he rolled back on his heels and he hit his head on the table and he looked up at me with messed up hair and he had sweat dripping from his brow and he looked up and he said brother you're right on schedule and he ducked his head back under the table and he went <laughs> and he went back to kicking the carpet and I'm right on schedule right on schedule yes I'm right on schedule you know and I went there but but what, what he would never let me hang the strength of my spiritual experience on the counsel that he would give or on the wisdom that he had or on his walk with the Lord. He would always say, you pray about that. You go to Jesus and talk to Jesus about what you should do with that. And it's so important for us personally to establish our relationship with the Lord. But then on the other hand, that that we point others into that same vein. And we see that Joash failed in that. He never had his own walk with the Lord uh, in, in the whole thing. And so he did good the days that Jehoiada instructed him. But it says, but the high places were not taken away. The competing altars or places where the people would go to worship because they didn't want to go to the temple that was in Jerusalem. It says that the people still sacrificed and burnt incense in the high places. Now, we're going to read that about every king. And, and you would think that after a while, God would just give up on that. That he would just say, okay, well, you, you know, all the rest of the kings did this and, uh, you know, and that's just the way it was. Or God would stop saying it, but he never does. And it seems to us that it's almost a small thing, but there's no such thing as a small thing with God when it's important to him. And the high places speak of convenience worship. And I think it speaks something to us in these days. You know, I think uh, we have incredible tools before us with the advent of the Internet and the easy access to uh, online church services and, and teachings and Bible studies. And those are incredible tools, and I use them. We all use them. 
But when those things begin to usurp the place of gathering locally in a church body and being a part of fellowship of believers because you can get good teaching or better teaching or convenient teaching by simply downloading uh, the message and listening to it while you're driving into work, it's kind of exactly what the high places spoke of. They were worshiping the same God, but they were not doing it in the way that God prescribed and God took notice of it. And so it says that they burnt incense in the high places. And now it goes into the, uh, the, the, the sole accomplishment of Joash's life. It says, And Jehoash said to the priests, All the money of the dedicated things that is brought into the house of the Lord, even the money of everyone that passes the account, that would be the temple tax, the money that every man is set at, that would be the money that they would pay to satisfy their vows that they made to God, And all the money that comes into any man's heart to bring, that would be the free will offering over and above what was required in the law. So take the money that's brought into the house of the Lord and let the priests take it to them and every man of his acquaintance and let them repair the breaches of the house wheresoever any breach shall be found. So Josiah has a soft spot for the temple. And after however many years of Ahab and or Athaliah reigning in the south and the paganism that came in, the temple was in shambles a hundred years after Solomon's reign. And so he has it in his heart that he wants to... Can we just get a handheld or something? Um, or, or the lapel, maybe? I'll fight through this for a minute. <laughs> it says... Um, that, that he, he had a heart for the temple and he wanted to uh, bring the temple up to its former glory. And, he, and that was a good thing that he had in his heart. And so he comes up with a plan to do it. And basically the money that would come into the temple would come in uh, in four different ways. There would first of all be the, the, the offerings that were, were required under the law, the dedicated things. The second thing was the temple tax. And every Jewish male had to pay a half shekel into the temple each year. And that was the way that they would kind of get around not having a census, is that they would pay that temple tax. And then there would be the vow money, like if you made a vow to the Lord that you were going to give to him uh, the firstborn ox or something, but then you changed your mind or you couldn't do it, you would not be set free from that vow. You would have to at least pay the value of it uh, to the Lord uh, in money. And so that would be the vow money and then the free will money. And that was really the sum total of the money that paid for the operation of costs in the temple. And so what Jehoash is basically saying here, it's going to pop, isn't it? Plug your ears. Check, check. So what Jehoash is basically asking for in, uh, in this whole thing is that you take the money that is set aside for the operating costs within the temple and now you guys go get whoever you know that does work around houses or handymans or puts ads on Craigslist that they can change light bulbs, just whoever your acquaintances are, and use the money that's brought in and hire those people and get this place looking right. And that was really uh, the, the um, extent of the planning that went into what uh, Jehoash wanted to do. And so this is basically an instance where he's asking them to do too much with too little. They didn't have... 
the sufficient resources to do what it was that they were being asked to do, and they didn't have the sufficient know-how or the sufficient organization to do it, but, but he wanted them to do it. So he had an idea, and he said, now take the money, uh, your salary, and, and you supply the materials and go for it. And so what happens? It says in verse 6, it says, But it was so that in the three and twentieth year of King Jehoash, that the priests had not repaired the breaches of the house. And so 23 years now into this project, the project it has gone nowhere. There's been absolutely nothing that's been done. And so King Jehoash called for Jehoiada the priest and the other priests, and he said unto them, Why do you not repair the breaches of the house? Now therefore receive no more money of your acquaintance, but deliver it for the breaches of the house. And the priests consented to receive no more money from the people, neither to repair the breaches of the house. So basically, uh, Joash calls the contract null and void. He says, that's it. You guys stop collecting money for the thing, putting money towards it, and I'll take this back into my own hands. And they say, thank you. It was a bad plan to begin with, and it didn't work out uh, from day one. So now plan B, verse 9. It says, but Jehoiada the priest, we see him again, took a chest. And he bored a hole in the lid of it, and he set it beside the altar on the right side as one cometh into the house of the Lord. And the priests that kept the door, the doormen, put therein all the money that was brought into the house of the Lord. So he puts a chest and he says, we're not going to take the money from the dedicated things, the temple tax, the vows of the free will offerings, but we're going to add another source. We're going to put a box by the altar and anyone that just wants to contribute to bringing this place back up will have a separate account just for that. And then he says, the priests, all you're on the hook for is to watch the box. And then verse 10, it was so that when they saw that there was much money in the chest, that the king's scribe and the high priest came up and they put it in bags and they counted the money that was found in the house of the Lord. And they gave the money being counted into the hands of them that did the work that had oversight of the house of the Lord and they laid it out to the carpenters and the builders that wrought upon the house of the Lord and to the masons and the hewers of stone and to buy timber materials and huge stone to repair the breaches of the house of the Lord and for all that was laid out for the house to repair it. Howbeit, there were not made for the house of the Lord bowls of silver, snuffers, basins, trumpets, any vessels of gold or vessels of silver or the money that was brought into the house of the Lord. But they gave that to the workmen, the money, and they repaired therewith the house of the Lord. And so we see a completely different approach now to getting this project done. First of all, the money's going to come from a different source. We're going to open a different account just for this. Second of all, the only thing that the priests are responsible for is to guard the box and give notice when it's full. At that point, the king's scribe and the high priest, they're going to be in charge of now counting the money. And then once it's counted, accounted for, they're going to give it to the people whose job is to maintain the temple those that have the oversight over the house, they're the ones that are going to get the money. And those people are responsible to hire contractors now, just not acquaintances of those that that do handyman type of things. But they're going to hire contractors to do the work. And it tells us basically that there was a budget involved because they didn't use that money to buy articles, the trumpets, the, the spoons, the bowls, the cups. That money was just for the work. And so it was a highly 
organized and planned out uh, thing at this point. And then notice what it says in verse 15. It says, moreover, they reckoned not with the men into whose hand they delivered the money to be bestowed on the workmen, for they dealt faithfully. So basically, the word to the contractors was, hey, whatever you need, go get it. However long it takes, do it. And if you run out of money, we'll make sure you get more. And these guys were so faithful that they didn't even need to be accounted for with time cards or receipts because they were so diligent to be careful to spend the Lord's money and use the Lord's time that they didn't even have to to render an account. So why is it that the plan worked the second time, yet it didn't work the first time? I believe that what this plan represents is the proper way that God likes to accomplish any work of ministry. Any work that God is going to accomplish in his name, and that means repairing the house of the Lord, or it means running a Sunday school, or if if even your job as a mother raising children or as a father instituting a family and seeking to see it raised up in the eyes of the Lord. Every work of ministry, no matter what it is, is always supposed to be a partnership between man and God. There's a great quote. It is this. It says that without us, Wait, no, let me start right. Without him, we can't. But without us, he won't. And there's truth in that. And there's really two extremes in the way that any ministry is approached. There's the first of all, there's the no plan plan. And the no plan plan is basically what Joash tried to do. It was just like, hey, we need to fix this place up. And so you guys take what money you can, find who you can to do it, and you guys just make it happen. And that was the extent of it. The problem with that is that it lends itself to apathy because you don't really care. There's nothing, you're not putting anything into it. It's the all God plan. God, you just do it. We're just going to believe that you want to do this. And we want you to just do it from soup to nuts, Lord. You raise up the people, put it in their hearts. You give them the wisdom. You drop the blueprints. God, you pay them what they're supposed to get paid and make sure there's enough money left over for the priest to get some at the end of the day. It's the all God plan. And it doesn't work. Now, there's another extreme on the other side, and that's the so hyper-organized plan that God has no part in it at all. And the problem with that plan isn't apathy, it's independence. Is that now things are so strictly tied up, and we know how every little string of this thing is going to do. We don't need God in this at all. And that's just as bad on the other extreme. Now, what we see in this is a very good balance. These people are extremely organized and diligent in the way that they're going about it. But yet they're giving place to the Holy Spirit. And they're being led in dependence upon him and allowing him to do it. How so? First of all, they're dependent on him for where the money is going to come from. They can only move as fast as God provides the funds for them to do it. They're giving place for God to provide and lead by his spirit. They're also giving place for God to move upon the hearts of the workmen. They're not micromanaging everything that they do, taking account of every nail and looking at every receipt. These men are dealing faithfully. And so they're giving place for the Spirit of God to move upon their hearts to deliver an excellent product in an efficient amount of time and in a good, reasonable spending plan. They're giving place for God. So they're organized, and yet, at the same time, they're dependent upon the Spirit of God. And that's always the way that things are to be done in any area of our lives. We're to plan that we don't become apathetic And we're to depend and trust on God so that we don't become independent. And we see that it worked wonderfully here 
for uh, the working the working of the temple. And then notice in verse 16, it says that the trespass money and the sin money was not brought into the house of the Lord. It was the priests. So the priest's salary, what they needed to live upon, was not affected in the thing. And it was just a well-run thing. I believe another reason, perhaps, why they didn't have to reckon accounts with the contractors is because things were being done so diligently that they just assumed that they wouldn't be able to get over by flubbing time cards or making things take more time. And there's just something to think about in that. Well, after verse 16, the narrative kind of goes blank because in Chronicles, we learn that Jehoiada dies at this point. And this is where things really turn south for Jehoash. And if you read 2 Chronicles chapter 24, what you're going to learn is that as soon as Jehoiada passed off the scene, some of the young men came in and had a conference with Joash. Does that sound familiar? Remember when Solomon died and Rehoboam took over his son and the old men came in and the young men came in and they both gave their counsel and he went with the counsel of the young men? Well, this time there's no conferring with the old men. It's just the young men. And they come in and they persuade Joash to reinstitute some of the pagan practices that had been abolished, to reinstitute some Baal worship and some Asherah poles and some groves and high places. And what we learn there is that Joash immediately caves to the desire of these young men, and he does it. And so it says, because of that, God raised up an instrument of chastisement, verse 17. It says, then Hazael, the king of Syria, went up and he fought against Gath, And he took it. Now, Gath is in the region of the Philistines, you remember from our Samson studies on the Mediterranean coast. And then Hazael set his face to go up to Jerusalem. You remember Hazael. He's the one uh, that Elisha anointed king over Syria. We've learned about him in our past studies. And Jehoash, the king of Judah, took all the hallowed things that Jehoshaphat and Jehoram and Ahaziah, his fathers, kings of Judah, had dedicated and his own hallowed things, and all the gold that was found in the treasures of the house of the Lord, and in the king's house, and he sent it to Hazael, the king of Syria, and he went away from Jerusalem. So Joash's answer to the threatening opposition that was coming from Hazael was to try to pay him off. And he took four generations of progress and consecration and he paid it all to, the, to, to this man, Haziel, in order to just get him to go away. And it works temporarily. But the problem with it is that when you give in without any battle at all, and you satisfy the desire or the front that comes from opposing forces or from an enemy, all you do is embolden that enemy to come back later because he knows he can take a spoil without a fight. And that's exactly what's going to happen later on. It's a temporary fix that cost him everything. And it didn't even accomplish the thing that he designed or desired for it to do. Well, it says that the rest of the acts of Joash and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? And his servants arose and they made a conspiracy and they slew Joash in the house of Milo, which goeth down So he's assassinated by two of his servants. Now, again, there's more to the story. When you read 2 Chronicles chapter 24, you learn why these guys assassinated Joash. And here's the reason. 
When Jehoiada passed off the scene and the young men persuaded Joash to reinstitute Baal worship in Israel, the son of Jehoiada, a priest by the name of Zechariah, stood up and publicly rebuked Joash and his sons because of the things that they were doing. And Joash ordered his execution. Now think about that for a minute. He basically has the son of the man who made him what he was stoned. He orders it himself. And it was because of that and because of the idolatry that he reintroduced that these two men rise up and they assassinate. Now, they are not off the hook for what they did. They're going to have to pay for it. That's never the answer to dealing with something like what they are dealing with or how they deal with it. But nevertheless, that's why it happened. And so it says that Jehoshakar, the son of Shimeath, and Jehozabad, the son of Shomer, his servant, smote him and he died. And they buried him with his fathers in the city of David. And Amaziah, his son, reigned in his stead. And so Joash teaches us, first of all, what happens when someone lives their whole life just under an extreme impressionable spirit just being uh, fingerprinted by every opinion that comes across their path and being swayed by it and never standing firm upon their own convictions. No matter what voice it was that was in his ear, that's the way that he went and the way that he followed. Uh, it's interesting, you know, I think that, that, that we all kind of go through something like that in our spiritual life with the Lord. I mean, we, we're born again and we're kind of born into this whole kingdom thing as infants and we know nothing. And so we find someone that knows a little bit of truth uh, or that you know, can teach us a thing or two and, and we're, we're inclined to, to listen and go along with it. And that's okay. The problem is when you stay there too long. Right? There's others in the scripture. I think of Lot, you know, who was the nephew of Abraham. He had a walk with God, but it was Abraham's walk with God. When Abraham was no longer there, we see him turn sideways and go off to Sodom. We see it with many of the companions of the apostle Paul. They were strong while they were with Paul. But once they were off on their own in different territories, many of them turned back and they went away. And for us, it's a warning. It's a safeguard for us. Stay close to Jesus. Have brothers and sisters. Have trusted ones that you listen to and take counsel from and are, are taught by. But always let Jesus be first in your life. He was impressionable. We also learned that he was unprepared. He was way too young and way underdeveloped to be put into the position that he was put into. And even though it was by the providence and promise of God, Nevertheless, it speaks to us of the importance of the process God takes us through in preparing us for what he has for us. And so we leave Judah in the south. In chapter 13, we go into Israel in the north. And it says, In the 23rd year of Joash, the son of Ahaziah, the king of Judah, Jehoahaz, the son of Jehu, began to reign over Israel in Samaria, and he reigned 17 years. So the second king now, in the dynasty of Jehu. And he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. And he followed the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which made Israel to sin. He departed not therefrom. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he delivered them into the hand of Hazael, the king of Syria, and into the hand of Ben-Hadad, the son of Hazael, all their days. Now, when Jehoash or Joash had Jehoiada stoned, or I'm sorry, had Zechariah stoned, it was because Zechariah said these words to him. He said this. It says that the Spirit of God came upon Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada the priest, which stood above the people, and he said unto them, Thus saith God, 
Why do you transgress the commandments of the Lord so that you cannot prosper? Because you have forsaken the Lord, he also has forsaken you. And what we learn is that the reason why Hazael and Ben-Hadad were so successful in their route of the people of God was because of the apostasy that had ensued. It was because of that. Now, Jehoahaz realizes that, and thus in verse 4 it says that Jehoahaz besought the Lord, and the Lord hearkened or listened unto him. For he saw the oppression of Israel because the king of Syria oppressed them. And the Lord gave Israel a savior or a deliverer so that they went out from under the hand of the Syrians and the children of Israel dwelt in their tents as before him. Now, how amazing is that? That here's these people that have turned their back so completely on God and this king who's evil in the eyes of God. And he doesn't even repent. He just humbles himself before God. And he says, God, help us. And God raises up a deliverer. Now, now it doesn't tell us who this deliverer was, but do you know who it was? It was another opposing kingdom, another country that surrounded them, that distracted the attention of Syria's military for a season. In other words, God rose up a conflict on another front so that Syria had to leave Israel alone for a while. Isn't it amazing how God orchestrates the nations of the world like chess pieces? And in one moment, he can turn the captivity of a nation and lift them back up again to their former glory. And for a very short season, Hazael's pulled off. Now, what amazes me in this is that for years now, the people of Israel have been crying out to false gods, to Baal, to Asherah for their salvation. And not once have any of those false gods been able to come through for Israel. And now this wicked king cries out to God in one moment of desperation and God turns the whole table on them. And you would think that they'd wake up and they'd realize and say, wow, finally we found a God that answers our prayers, a God that's for us and that can help us. Wouldn't you think? But notice what it says. It says in verse 6, Nevertheless, they departed not from the sins of the house of Jeroboam who made Israel sin but they walked therein and there remained the grove in Samaria. And so they turn again from God and so God turns Syria back on them. It says, neither did he leave of the people to Jehoahaz, but 50 horsemen and 10 chariots and 10,000 footmen. For the king of Syria had destroyed them and had made them like the dust by the threshing. Now I want you to think about something. Only 100 or 100 plus years Before this time, when Solomon was reigning upon the throne of Israel, the strength of Israel's army was 12,000 horsemen, 14,000 chariots, and 1.3 million footmen that were there. Not only that, but Solomon had two navies, one at Tarshish and another one from another, uh, up in another port that went to another place. I mean, the, the might of Israel's military under Solomon's reign was absolutely astounding. And what we see here, now that the people have turned so far from God, that their army has been decimated to a point where now it says that there were 50 horsemen, 10 chariots, and only uh, 10,000 footmen. And that is absolutely nothing of an army. It's almost as though the king of Syria only left those behind as a mockery. That, that, That the glory of Israel's army would look more like the Macy's Day Parade you know, with a float and a couple of soldiers with iron shields than the former glory of in Solomon's day when uh, we remember what it was like. 
The strength of a nation always stands in the strength of its relationship with God. In Proverbs chapter 14, verse 34, the, psalm, the, the wise man said, Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. It, it isn't that the military is the strength of Israel, whether it was David's day or whether it's now. The strength of Israel was always in their relationship with God. But in turning away from God, they saw their military strength depleted. And that's always going to be the case of any nation. The strength of our nation does not lie in the strength of our military or our technology or our resources or anything else that we have. But the strength of our nation is our relationship with God. And so goes our relationship with God, so also will go the strength of everything else in our country, whether it's our military or our Department of Homeland Security or the Department of Defense or the Department of Agriculture or the Food and Drug Administration or any other agency that we rely upon, whether we're aware of it or not, that makes life for us what it is. Our strength doesn't lie in those things. But God allows those things to prosper because of our relationship with him. But should we turn from God as a nation, we see those things decline proportionately. This afternoon, I popped open a book that, uh, it's kind of a coffee table book called America's God and Country, and I did one of those roulette moments where you just flip open and read wherever the, 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 the thing lies, and, and I stumbled upon this. I'll share it with you. It's um, uh, uh, the Congress of the United States of America was addressed by George Washington on April 30th, 1789, uh, in his famous inaugural speech to both houses of Congress. He had just taken the oath of office on the balcony of Federal Hall in New York City with his hand upon a Bible open to Deuteronomy 28. Remember Deuteronomy 28? It's one of the longest chapters in the Bible, the blessings and the cursings. It's a dark chapter, but it's a fearful chapter. If you follow God, he'll bless you. If you turn from God, watch out. Embarrassed by the thunderous ovation which followed the inauguration ceremony, the pealing church bells and the roaring of artillery he went inside to deliver his address to Congress. And these were his words. Such being the impressions under which I have, in obedience to the public summons, repaired to the present station, it would be peculiarly improper to omit, in this first official act, my fervent supplications to God Almighty who rules over the universe, who presides in the councils of nations, and whose providential aids can supply every human defect that his benediction may consecrate to the liberties and happiness of the people of the United States a government instituted by themselves for these essential purposes and may enable every instrument employed in its administration to execute with success the functions allotted to its charge. In rendering, tendering this homage to the great author of every public and private good, I assure myself that it expresses your sentiments not less than my own, nor those of my fellow citizens at large, less than either. No people can be bound to acknowledge and adore the invisible hand which conducts the affairs of men more than the people of the United States. Every step by which they have advanced to the character of an independent nation seems to have been distinguished by some token of providential agency. We ought to be no less persuaded that the propitious smiles of heaven can never be expected on a nation that disregards the eternal rules of order and right 
which heaven itself has ordained. And since the preservation of the sacred fire of liberty and the destiny of the republic model of government are justly considered as deeply, perhaps finally, staked on the experiment. In other words, the whole basis of our republic succeeding as a form of government under the hand of God is related to our dependence and obedience to his laws and his decrees. And should we turn from those things, then we should no longer as a nation expect that his good hand of providence that established our nation will continue to carry our nation. Now, one paragraph down from that, an event that took place two days later, it says that the Congress of the United States on May 1st of 1789... That's two days, one day, because there's only 30 days in April, right? One day after that, it says that the Congress approved in the House of Representatives to elect the Reverend William Lynn as its chaplain and then appropriated $500 from the federal treasury to pay his salary. And the Reverend Bishop Samuel Provost was elected the publicity, uh, the public and publicly paid to be the chaplain of the Senate. And both the House and the Senate have continued to regularly open every session with prayer. Now, why do I share that with you? Because on November 14th, which is the latter part of last week, something happened in our nation that has never, ever happened in our nation before. And that is that an imam from a mosque in New Jersey was invited to give the opening prayer for the session of the House of Representatives. And Should our technology be working, I would show you that video because when you see that happen with John Boehner standing behind him and all of the high officials of the house surrounding him as he invokes the blessing of Allah upon the protection and providence of our country. When you see that for yourself, something turns inside if you are a child of God. And then just after that, for the first time ever in our nation, a prayer service, a Muslim prayer service, was held in the National Cathedral, which is the Christian church that stands for the Christian foundation of our nation. And what we're watching take place in our country and before our eyes right now is not just a turning away from a God, but a turning of our back and our hand to God and saying, not only are we not interested in obeying your commands, but we don't even want your influence within our society. And for us to enjoy the things that we enjoy as a country and as a nation, and to think that somehow if we jettison God from our presence, and that that stuff is just going to stay the same and go unchanged, is absolute folly and foolishness. It cannot happen. And what once was a glorious thing for our land, the land of liberty, and the land of providence, and a land of glory, what we are seeing happen before our eyes is that the bottom is being taken out of it. And should things not turn and there be a revival of the Holy Spirit in our nation and people turning back to God, then we're going to watch the hand of God taken off of our country. And in the same proportion that the glory of Israel went from Solomon's army to Jehoahaz's army will be the proportion of what was the former glory of our country into what it will become, which is nothing apart from God. Now the rest of the acts of Jehoahaz and all that he did and his might, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel? And Jehoahaz slept with his fathers 
And they buried him in Samaria. And Joash, his son, reigned in his stead. Oh, great. We get another Joash now. This is a different Joash in uh, the north. And in the 37th year of Joash, the king of Judah, began Jehoash, the son of Jehoahaz, this is in the north, to reign over Israel in Samaria, and he reigned 16 years. And he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. You can almost say this in your sleep now. He departed not from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel sin, but he walked therein. And the rest of the acts of Joash and all that he did and his might wherewith he fought against Amaziah, the king of Judah, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? And Joash slept with his fathers and Jeroboam sat upon his throne and Joash was buried in Samaria with the kings of Israel. Now the rest of the chapter is just two events that take place uh, in Israel during the reign of Joash in the north and it also includes the death of Elisha but we'll save it for our study uh, next time. So read ahead, read the rest of the chapter and then read on through uh, chapter 14 for our study um, that we'll have the week after Thanksgiving when we come back um, to, to continue our study in Second Kings. And let's pray together. The worship team can come. Father, we thank you tonight, Lord, that your word still speaks. And the testimony of it, Lord, is as true today as it was in the day that you first spoke it and when it happened. Lord, we believe, and with one voice we profess, that righteousness exalts a nation, but that sin is a reproach to any people. And Lord, we recognize that as citizens, in some way, we're as guilty as our leaders, because we've elected them. And we're asking, Lord, that tonight you would have mercy upon us. Lord, as we consider where we've fallen from, many of us here are like Jehoiada. They were alive in the 1950s, the 1960s, lived through the 70s and the 80s, and they've seen, like Jehoiada did, the decline of the nation. And then they sit here today and they look around, we look around, Lord, and we say, how did we get here? And Lord, we recognize, like Daniel did, Lord, that it's us. We recognize, like Isaiah did, that we're a people of unclean lips. And that we dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. And that though maybe we haven't participated in some of the sins, we've allowed them. Or we've been entertained by them. And tonight, Lord, with a collective voice, we desire to repent before you. We desire to humble ourselves before the God who made all things. The God who spoke and said, light be and light was. The God who instituted our nation and made it what it was. The God who shed his grace on us so much that even right now we're freely gathered in assembly, reading the word of God and worshiping. The God who provided for us that every one of us here sits tonight with a full belly. And many of us with a fridge full of food and a warm house to go to. Lord, you've been so faithful in your provision for us. We have a nation have turned our backs upon you. And tonight, Lord, as a congregation, we're asking, Lord, that you would have mercy on us. That you would forgive us for our sins. That you would forgive our government. That you would forgive our president. You would forgive the House of Representatives that profanes your name by bringing idolatry into your very face, Lord. We pray that you'd forgive our churches, Lord, that have turned from you and that have abandoned the word of God and that have turned to the counsels of psychology and the counsels of false religion and self-help, and that have left off the truth 
that can change lives in the gospel of our salvation. And we're asking tonight, Lord, that a fire would be ignited in every one of our hearts and that we would turn to you with all of our strength and all of our soul and all of our mind. Lord, that if there's any turning, if there's any chance, Lord, that you would use our lives or use our church in this county or in this country, Lord, we're asking that a Holy Spirit revival would start right here, right now. And Lord, we're asking that if there's any sin in everyone, any one of our lives, anything, Lord, that we've placed before you in front of your altar, in your house, within our heart, if there's any Haziel, Lord, that's presented itself to us and in some way we've paid it off, we've said, here, take whatever your desire is. And we've opened ourselves up to lust or to substances or to compromise in any way, Lord, would you give us the grace right now to lay those things at your altar and that we'd find ourselves restored to you again, that we'd find ourselves hearing your voice again, that your word would come to life again, that your truth would become our passion and our food again, Lord, that your gospel would be upon our lips, that a passion for souls would replace our apathy, that, Lord, that when we would look at people, we wouldn't see blank faces or annoyances, We'd see souls again, Lord. So, Father, have our hearts and renew again, Lord, the strength of our first bond in relationship with you. You said you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. So, Father, make us that salt and make us that light. And teach us, Lord, with wisdom and with Holy Spirit illumination and with Spirit-led and Spirit-driven lives. Teach us to do your will, O Lord, and use us in the days that we're living. And Father, if there's anyone here tonight that has something to lay before your altar, I pray that as we close in song, Lord, that they would lay that before you. that nothing, Lord, would come between us and experiencing your love. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand.